Chapter Seven, Part Two of Pioneers of France in the New World, Part One: The Huguenots in Florida. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pioneers of France in the New World by Francis Parkman, Part One: Huguenots in Florida, Chapter Seven, Menendez, Part Two, 1565. Meanwhile, the tenants of Fort Caroline were not idle. Two or three soldiers, strolling along the beach in the afternoon, had first seen the Spanish ships, and hastily summoned Ribot. He came down to the mouth of the river, followed by an anxious and excited crowd, but as they strained their eyes through the darkness, they could see nothing but the flashes of the distant guns. At length the returning light showed, far out at sea, the adelantado in hot chase of their flying comrades. Pursuers and pursued were soon out of sight. The drums beat to arms. After many hours of suspense, the San Palayo reappeared, hovering about the mouth of the river, then bearing away towards the south. More anxious hours ensued, when three other sail came in sight, and they recognized three of their own returning ships. Communication was opened, a boat's crew landed, and they learned from Cossette, one of the French captains, that, confiding in the speed of his own ship, he had followed the Spaniards to St. Augustine, reconnoitred their position, and seen them land their negroes and entrench themselves. La Donniere lay sick in bed in his chamber at Fort Caroline when Ribot entered, and with him La Grange, Saint-Marie, Autinier, Yonville, and other officers. At the bedside of the displaced commandant they held their council of war. Three plans were proposed. First, to remain where they were and fortify themselves, next to push overland for st augustine and attack the invaders in their entrenchments and finally to embark and assail them by sea the first plan would leave their ships a prey to the spaniards and so too in all likelihood would the second besides the uncertainties of an overland march through an unknown wilderness by sea the distance was short and the route explored by a sudden blow they could capture or destroy the spanish ships and master the troops on shore before reinforcements could arrive, and before they had time to complete their defences. Such were the views of Ribot, with which, not unnaturally, Laudonniere finds fault, and Le Moyne echoes the censures of his chief. And yet the plan seems as well conceived as it was bold, lacking nothing but success. The Spaniards, stricken with terror, owed their safety to the elements, or, as they say, to the special interposition of the Holy Virgin. Menendez was a fit leader to stand with Cortez and Pizarro, but he was matched with a man as cool, skilful, prompt, and daring as himself. The traces that have come down to us indicate in Ribot one far above the common stamp, a distinguished man of many high qualities, as even the fault-finding Le Moyne calls him, devout after the best spirit of the reform, and with a human heart under his steel breastplate. Lagrange and other officers took part with Laudonniere, and opposed the plan of an attack by sea. But Ribot's conviction was unshaken, and the order was given. All his soldiers fit for duty embarked in haste, and with them went Lacaille, Arlac, and, as it seems, Autigny, with the best of Laudonniere's men. Even Le Moyne, though wounded in the fight with Otina's warriors, went on board to bear his part in the fray, and would have sailed with the rest had not Autigny, seeing his disabled condition, ordered him back to the fort. On the tenth, the ships, crowded with troops, set sail. Ribot was gone, and with him the bone and sinew of the colony. 
the miserable remnant watched his receding sails with dreary foreboding, a foreboding which seemed but too just, when on the next day a storm, more violent than the Indians had ever known, howled through the forest and lashed the ocean into fury. Most forlorn was the plight of these exiles, left, it might be, the prey of a band of ferocious bigots, more terrible than the fiercest hordes of the wilderness, and when night closed on the stormy river and the gloomy waste of pines, what dreams of terror may not have haunted the helpless women who crouched under the hovels of Port Caroline? The fort was in a ruinous state, with the palisade on the water-side broken down, and three breaches in the rampart. In the driving rain, urged by the sick Laudonniere, the men, bedrenched and disheartened, labored as they could to strengthen their defenses. Their muster-roll shows but a beggarly array. Now, says Laudonniere, let them, which have been bold to say that I had men enough left me, so that I had means to defend myself, give a care, little now, unto me, and if they have eyes in their heads, let them see what men I had. Of Ribot's followers left at the fort, only nine or ten had weapons, while only two or three knew how to use them. Four of them were boys, who kept Ribot's dogs, and another was his cook. Besides these, he had left a brewer, an old crossbow-maker, two shoemakers, a player on the spinet, four valets, a carpenter of threescore, Chalot, no doubt, who has left us the story of his woes, with a crowd of women, children, and eighty-six camp-followers. To these were added the remnant of Laudonniere's men, of whom seventeen could bear arms, the rest being sick or disabled by wounds received in the fight with Otina. Laudonniere divided his force, such as it was, into two watches, over which he placed two officers, St. Clair and La Vigne, gave them lanterns for going the rounds, and an hourglass for setting the time, while he himself, giddy with weakness and fever, was every night at the guard-room. It was the night of the 19th of September, the season of tempests, floods of rain drenched the sentries on the rampart, and as day dawned on the dripping barracks and deluged parade, the storm increased in violence. What enemy could venture out on such a night? La Vigne, who had the watch, took pity on the sentries and on himself, dismissed them, and went to his quarters. He little knew what human energies, urged by ambition, avarice, bigotry, and desperation, will dare and do. To return to the Spaniards at St. Augustine. On the morning of the 11th, the crew of one of their smaller vessels, lying outside the bar, with Menendez himself on board, saw through the twilight of early dawn two of Ribot's ships close upon them. Not a breath of air was stirring. There was no escape, and the Spaniards fell on their knees in supplication to Our Lady of Utrera, explaining to her that the heretics were upon them, and begging her to send them a little wind. Forthwith, says Mendoza, one would have said that Our Lady herself came down upon the vessel. A wind sprang up, and the Spaniards found refuge behind the bar. The returning days showed to their astonished eyes all the ships of Ribot, their decks black with men, hovering off the entrance of the port, but heaven had them in its charge, and again they experienced its protecting care. The breeze sent by Our Lady of Utrera rose to a gale, then to a furious tempest, and the grateful Adelantado saw, through rain and mist, the ships of his enemy tossed wildly among the raging waters as they struggled to gain an outing. With exultation in his heart, the skilful seamen read their danger, and saw them, in his mind's eye, dashed to utter wreck among the sandbars and breakers off the lee shore. A bold thought seized him. 
he would march overland with five hundred men and attack Fort Caroline while its defenders were absent. First he ordered a mass, and then he called a council. Doubtless it was in that great Indian lodge of Siloy, where he had made his headquarters, and here, in the dim and smoky abode, nobles, officers, and priests gathered at his summons. There were fears and doubts and murmurings, but Menendez was desperate, not with the mad desperation that strikes wildly and at random, but the still white heat that melts and burns and seethes with an unsteady, unquenchable fierceness. Comrades, he said, the time has come to show our courage and our zeal. This is God's war, and we must not flinch. It is war with Lutherans, and we must wage it with blood and fire. But his hearers gave no response. They had not a million of ducats at stake, and were not ready for a cast so desperate. A clamor of remonstrance rose from the circle. Many voices, that of Mendoza among the rest, urged waiting till their main forces should arrive. The excitement spread to the men without, and the swarthy, black-bearded crowd broke into tumults, mounting almost to mutiny, while an officer was heard to say that he would not go on such a hare-brained errand to be butchered like a beast. But nothing could move the adelantado. His appeals or his threats did their work at last. The confusion was quelled, and preparation was made for the march. On the morning of the 17th, five hundred arquebusiers and pikemen were drawn up before the camp. To each was given six pounds of biscuit and a canteen filled with wine. Two Indians and a renegade Frenchman, called François Jean, were to guide them, and twenty Biscayan axemen moved to the front to clear the way. Through floods of driving rain, a hoarse voice shouted the word of command, and the sullen march began. With dismal misgiving, Mendoza watched the last files as they vanished in the tempestuous forest. Two days of suspense ensued when a messenger came back with a letter from the Adelantado, announcing that he had nearly reached the French fort, and that on the morrow, September the 20th, at sunrise, he hoped to assault it. "'May the Divine Majesty deign to protect us, for he knows we have need of it,' writes the scared chaplain. "'The Adelantado's great zeal and courage make us hope he will succeed, but for the good of His Majesty's service he ought to be a little less ardent in pursuing his schemes.' Meanwhile the five hundred pushed their march, now toiling across the inundated Savanarius, waist-deep in bulrushes and mud, now filing through the open forest to the moan and roar of the storm-racked pines, now hacking their way through palmetto thickets, and now turning from their path to shun some pool, quagmire, cypress swamp or hummock, matted with impenetrable bushes, brambles, and vines. As they bent before the tempest, the water trickling from the rusty headpiece crept clammy and cold betwixt the armor and the skin, and when they made their wretched bivouac their bed was the spongy soil, and the exhaustless clouds their tent. The night of Wednesday the 19th found their vanguard in a deep forest of pines, less than a mile from Fort Caroline, and near the low hills which extended in its rear, and formed a continuation of St. John's Bluff. All around was one great morass. In pitchy darkness, knee-deep in weeds and water, half-starved, worn with toil and lack of sleep, drenched to the skin, their provisions spoiled, their ammunition wet, and their spirit chilled out of them, they stood in shivering groups, cursing the enterprise and the author of it. Menendez heard Fernando Perez, an ensign, say aloud to his comrades, This Asturian Corito, who knows no more of war on shore than an ass, has betrayed us all. By God, if my advice had been followed, he would have had his deserts the day he set out on this cursed journey. 
the Adelantado pretended not to hear. Two hours before dawn he called his officers about him. All night, he said, he had been praying to God and the Virgin. Signors, what shall we resolve on? Our ammunition and provisions are gone. Our case is desperate. And he urged a bold rush on the fort. But men and officers alike were disheartened and disgusted. They listened coldly and sullenly. Many were for returning at every risk. None were in the mood for fight. Menendez put forth all his eloquence, till at length the dashed spirits of his followers were so far revived that they consented to follow him. All fell on their knees in the marsh. Then, rising, they formed their ranks and began to advance, guided by the renegade Frenchman, whose hands, to make sure of him, were tied behind his back. Groping and stumbling in the dark among trees, roots, and underbrush, buffeted by wind and rain, and lashed in the face by the recoiling boughs which they could not see, they soon lost their way, fell into confusion, and came to a stand, in a more savagely desponding mood than before. But soon a glimmer of returning day came to their aid, and showed them the dusky sky, and the dark columns of the surrounding pines. Menendez ordered the men forward on pain of death. They obeyed, and presently, emerging from the forest, could dimly discern the ridge of a low hill, behind which, the Frenchmen told them, was the fort. Menendez, with a few officers and men, cautiously mounted to the top. Beneath lay Fort Caroline, three bowshots distant, but the rain, the imperfect light, and a cluster of intervening houses prevented his seeing clearly, and he sent two officers to reconnoitre. As they descended they met a solitary Frenchman. They knocked him down with a sheathed sword, wounded him, took him prisoner, kept him for a time, and then stabbed him as they returned towards the top of the hill. Here, clutching their weapons, all the gang stood in fierce expectancy. "'Santiago!' cried Menendez. "'At them! God is with us! Victory!' And shouting their hoarse war-cries, the Spaniards rushed down the slope like starved wolves. Not a sentry was on the rampart. La Vigne, the officer of the guard, had just gone to his quarters, but a trumpeter, who chanced to remain, saw, through sheets of rain, the swarm of assailants sweeping down the hill. He blew the alarm, and at the summons a few half-naked soldiers ran wildly out of the barracks. It was too late. Through the breaches and over the ramparts the Spaniards came pouring in, with shouts of, Santiago, Santiago! Sick men leaped from their beds. Women and children, blind with fright, darted shrieking from the houses. A fierce, gaunt visage, the thrust of a pike, or a blow of a rusty halberd, such was the greeting that met all alike. Laudonniere snatched his sword and target, and ran towards the principal breach, calling to his soldiers. A rush of Spaniards met him. His men were cut down around him, and he, with a soldier named Bartholomew, was forced back into the yard of his house. Here stood a tent, and as the pursuers stumbled among the cords, he escaped behind Autigny's house, sprang through the breach in the western rampart, and fled for the woods. Lemoyne had been one of the guard. Scarcely had he thrown himself into a hammock which was slung in his room, when a savage shout, and a wild uproar of shrieks, outcries, and the clash of weapons, brought him to his feet. He rushed by two Spaniards in the doorway, ran behind the guardhouse, leaped through an embrasure into the ditch, and escaped to the forest. Chaloux, the carpenter, was going betimes to his work, a chisel in his hand. He was old, but pike and partisan brandished at his back gave wings to his flight. In the ecstasy of his terror he leapt upward, clutched at the top of the palisade, and threw himself over with the agility of a boy. He ran up the hill, no one pursuing, 
and as he neared the edge of the forest, turned and looked back. From the high ground where he stood he could see the butchery, the fury of the conquerors, and the agonizing gestures of the victims. He turned again in horror, and plunged into the woods. As he tore his way through the briars and thickets, he met several fugitives escaped like himself. Others presently came up, haggard and wild, like men broken loose from the jaws of death. They gathered together and consulted. One of them, known as Master Robert, in great repute for his knowledge of the Bible, was for returning and surrendering to the Spaniards. They are men, he said, perhaps when their fury is over they will spare our lives, and even if they kill us it will only be a few moments' pain. Better so than to starve here in the woods, or be torn to pieces by wild beasts. The greater part of the naked and despairing company assented, but Chaloux was of a different mind. The old Huguenot quoted scripture, and called the names of prophets and apostles to witness, that in the direst extremity God would not abandon those who rested their faith in him. Six of the fugitives, however, still held to their desperate purpose. Issuing from the woods, they descended towards the fort, and as with beating hearts their comrades watched the result, a troop of Spaniards rushed out, hewed them down with swords and halberds, and dragged their bodies to the brink of the river, where the victims of the massacre were already flung in heaps. Lemoyne, with a soldier named Grandamine, whom he had met in his flight, toiled all day through the woods and marshes, in the hope of reaching the small vessels anchored behind the bar. Night found them in a morass. No vessel could be seen, and the soldier, in despair, broke into angry upbraidings against his companion, saying that he would go back and give himself up. Lemoyne at first opposed him, then yielded. But when they drew near the fort, and heard the uproar of savage revelry that rose from within, the artist's heart failed him. He embraced his companion, and the soldier advanced alone. A party of Spaniards came out to meet him. He kneeled and begged for his life. He was answered by a death-blow, and the horrified Lemoyne, from his hiding-place in the thicket, saw his limbs hacked apart, stuck on pikes, and borne off in triumph. Meanwhile, Menendez, mustering his followers, had offered thanks to God for their victory, and this pious butcher wept with emotion as he recounted the favors which heaven had showed upon their enterprise. His admiring historian gives it in proof of his humanity, that after the rage of the assault was spent, he ordered that women, infants, and boys under fifteen should thenceforth be spared. Of these, by his own account, there were about fifty. Writing in October to the king, he says that they cause him great anxiety, since he fears the anger of God, should he now put them to death in cold blood, while on the other hand he is in dread lest the venom of their heresy should infect his men. A hundred and forty-two persons were slain in and around the fort, and their bodies lay heaped together on the bank of the river. Nearly opposite was anchored a small vessel, called the Pearl, commanded by Jacques Ribot, son of the Admiral. The ferocious soldiery, maddened with victory and drunk with blood, crowded to the water's edge, shouting insults to those on board, mangling the corpses, tearing out their eyes, and throwing them towards the vessel from the points of their daggers. Thus did the most Catholic Philip champion the cause of heaven in the new world. It was currently believed in France, and though no eye-witness attests it, there is reason to think it true, that among those murdered at Fort Caroline there were some who died a death of particular ignominy. Menendez, it is affirmed, hanged his prisoners on trees, and placed over them the inscription, I do this not as to Frenchmen, but as to Lutherans. The Spaniards gained a great booty in armor, clothing, and provisions. Nevertheless, says the devout Mendoza, after closing his inventory of the plunder, 
The greatest profit of this victory is the triumph which our Lord has granted us, whereby his holy gospel will be introduced into this country, a thing so needful for saving so many souls from perdition. Again he writes in his journal, We owe to God and his mother, more than to human strength, this victory over the adversaries of the holy Catholic religion. To whatever influence, celestial or other, the exploit may best be ascribed, the victors were not yet quite content with their success. Two small French vessels, besides that of Jacques Ribot, still lay within range of the fort. When the storm had a little abated, the cannon were turned on them. One of them was sunk, but Ribot, with the others, escaped down the river, at the mouth of which several light craft, including that bought from the English, had been anchored since the arrival of his father's squadron. While this was passing, the wretched fugitives were flying from the scene of massacre through a tempest, of whose persistent violence all the narratives speak with wonder. Exhausted, starved, half-naked, for most of them had escaped in their shirts, they pushed their toilsome way amid the ceaseless wrath of the elements. A few sought refuge in Indian villages, but these, it is said, were afterwards killed by the Spaniards. The greater number attempted to reach the vessels at the mouth of the river. Among the latter was Lemoyne, who, notwithstanding his former failure, was toiling through the mazes of tangled forests, when he met a Belgian soldier, with the woman described as Laudonniere's maidservant, who was wounded in the breast, and urging their flight towards the vessels, they fell in with other fugitives, including Laudonniere himself. As they struggled through the salt marsh, the rank sedge cut their naked limbs, and the tide rose to their waists. Presently they descried others, toiling like themselves through the matted vegetation, and recognized Chalot and his companions, also in quest of the vessels. The old man still, as he tells us, held fast to his chisel, which had done good service in cutting poles to aid the party to cross the deep cracks that channeled the morass. The united band, twenty-six in all, were cheered at length by the sight of a moving sail. It was the vessel of Captain Mallard, who, informed of the massacre, was standing along shore in hope of picking up some of the fugitives. He saw their signals, and sent boats to their rescue, but such was their exhaustion that, had not the sailors, wading to their armpits among the rushes, borne them out on their shoulders, few could have escaped. Laudonniere was so feeble that nothing but the support of a soldier, who held him upright in his arms, had saved him from drowning in the marsh. On gaining the friendly decks, the fugitives counseled together. One and all, they sickened for the sight of France. After waiting a few days, and saving a few more stragglers from the marsh, they prepared to sail. Young Ribot, though ignorant of his father's fate, assented with something more than willingness. Indeed, his behavior throughout had been stamped with weakness and poltroonery. On the 25th of September, they put to sea in two vessels, and after a voyage, the privations of which were fatal to many of them, they arrived, one party at Rochelle, the other at Swansea, in Wales. End of chapter 7